welcome back to the Entertainment Goes Pop podcast, where all things entertainment cross over with all things pop culture, meaning anything is fair game to talk about here, whether it's TV, movies, music, sports, video gaming, all fair game, all topics on this podcast. This week we're going to talk about the ending of Radio Disney. We're going to talk about the reboot of Punky Brewster. The reboot of Saved by the Bell. I'm going to give my thoughts on the first season of that. So spoiler alert for the end. I'm going to save that for the very end of the podcast. I am going to talk full spoilers on this full season of Saved by the Bell. And also going to talk about console wars. The discussion of topics of video gaming back in the 80s and early 90s between Sega and Nintendo. Of that very cool documentary that was put together. So let's get right to it. As a big music fan, I was very sad to hear that Radio Disney Country was going to be ceasing operations. You know, not just Radio Disney Country, but of course the regular Radio Disney as well. Uh, I found this out when I logged into my Radio Disney app back a little before Christmas. I actually think it was Christmas Eve that I logged in. I was just wanting to listen to some music that day. I was working around in the house doing some cleaning. And I was like, I'm just going to listen to some music. And up on my app pops that the Radio Disney app will be closing on January 22nd, 2021. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Um... So I started digging around. I thought, well, maybe, I don't know. I just thought maybe they're just doing away with the app and it's just going to be available. I don't know. I was just trying to think any kind of logical explanation on why that was up there. And I did a Google search on a news search and popped it up. And there was an announcement that Radio Disney and Radio Disney Country were going to be ceasing operations in the first quarter of 2021. And just completely shocked. I'm going to read uh, the statement that Radio Disney put out about this. Uh, Radio Disney and Radio Disney Country will cease operations in the first quarter of 2021. The announcement was made today by Gary Marsh, President and Chief Creative Officer of Disney Branded Television, who today addressed 36 full and part-time employees who will be impacted by the closure early next year. Radio Disney in Latin America is a separate operation and is not impacted by the announcement today. The difficult decision to close these two radio networks coincided with Disney's recently announced structural changes that call for Disney-branded television to sharpen its focus on increasing production of kids and family content for Disney Plus and Disney Channels. Division leaders also took into account the fast-evolving media environment that provides more personalized music choices than ever to a generation of young consumers and the ongoing public health crisis that continues to affect in-person music events. So that is what the statement was from Radio Disney that they put out. It does sound like, from kind of from what I've read, that this is fallout from the pandemic, you know, that... It's just a pandemic situation where, you know, money is what it is, you know. But it is interesting that they're focusing more on the Disney Plus side. But this is a major bummer for, especially, I didn't listen to Radio Disney 
I can't remember the last time I actually just straight up listened to regular Radio Disney. It's probably back, I don't know, probably around 2000-ish or something, where I'd just occasionally pop it up there where I liked, you know, the pop music going on at the time. Just wanted to see what they were playing. But Radio Disney Country has been a major thing for country music especially for the female side because it's no secret that country radio is very dominated by the males and country radio is very vocal about that in fact there have been several controversial statements put out there from people in country radio that have basically said that people don't want to listen to women in country, that they'd rather listen to men and comparing stats and here's our stats and like the the various comparisons of how you know how much how many male songs are played before you hear a female. And to me there's not a lot of male country radio that I like. There's very few that I'm really into, and I'm, of course, over on the female side. I've been very vocal for several years about just wanting to get these awesome ladies of country that are out there and just trying to push them and just shove them, you know, to get the get the recognition that they deserve, you know, this amazing talent that they've got, and... Radio Disney Country was somebody that played very even. They were very even, and you heard a lot of females on this station. And it was a major deal, I thought. And this is a station that I listened to a lot, enjoying that. And I think this is really gonna... For me, it's gonna hurt me as far as finding new music. You know, because... There's a lot of times where I would turn this station on and just because I, for me, I'm I'm over on the country pop side. That's that's the majority of what I like. That's that's like my main category of. I mean, if you listen to last week's podcast where I'm laying out my favorites of the year, where did most of them land? You know what genre, and. It was good to hear a lot of like new music. And I'll say like going back into the summer, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I talked about how I just get out in the yard and just walk laps and everything. And a lot of what my summer music was, was Radio Disney Country. I would turn that on and I would listen to it. I'd walk for an hour and just listen to these songs for an hour. And there were a lot of songs that I got hooked on that I would not have even known existed if I hadn't been listening to it on this radio station. And I can't tell you how many times I'd be walking and I'd be listening to the song and going, I really like the song. And I'd pull my phone back out of my pocket and I would screenshot it. I'd screenshot the app to where it had the name of the song on it to where I could say, okay, later on I need to go find that song because I really like that. And there was probably one day that I walked and I probably had screenshotted like 10 songs that I just really loved. And I'm just, I'm very concerned because I don't even know for me as a listener of somebody that really likes that genre, I don't know 
what I need to find for an alternative. You know, it's where where else is there something out there that's streaming that's going to play this music? And if anybody knows of anything, please let me know that that there's something out there that is very similar to Radio Disney Country. But it was just a very enjoyable uh, listen. You know, when I would listen to the station, I loved the, the on-air talent were fun. They had interviews with different singers and they would, you know, talk about different different songs, different albums that had come out. And it was just just very fun. And it just really helped so many of my walking days. You know, I'd just get out and walk and I just loved it. Um, when I would years past when I've been to CMA Fest, uh during if you're not familiar with CMA Fest in uh, Nashville, they have stages just set up all over town. Some are inside, some are outside, and you just have different singers at different stages. And it's a big, you know, four-day, technically a four-day festival, but it stretches all week depending on what else is going on. But as far as the main part, it goes from, you know, the four days. And Radio Disney Country would have a stage set up inside of Fanfare X, and I can't tell you how much time I spent at the Radio Disney Country stage. Uh, there was one year to where I think I pretty well stayed there all day. You know, there were some shows outside and things like that going on. And I just, I loved the lineup that Radio Disney Country had that day. And I just hung around in there. And that was actually, I met Cassidy Pope you know, over at the Radio Disney Country stage, she was up there and I said, hey, we're going to do a meet and greet over here, get in line. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> I'm going to get in line over here. And, you know, there was there was just a lot of cool moments and I just really enjoyed that stage. And I, it's just, it's crazy to me because I'm assuming that stage isn't going to be there anymore. I don't, I mean, it's gone. It's ceased operations. So to me, it's, very like what in the world the thought of going back to CMA Fest and there not being a Radio Disney Country stage that's a big void you know I just can't imagine walking in there and you know there was two there were two stages set up I think in Fanfare X one was the Radio Disney Country stage and of course you had the up close stage which was like the big the big stage over there, the kind of the main event stage of that uh, of that venue, but I just can't imagine going in there and Radio Disney Country stage not being there. I was there when they launched the Radio Disney Country LA uh, station. They launched that at CMA Fest in 2017 probably middle of the day, I don't know, kind of middle of the afternoon or so, and they launched it up on stage, did a did a little ceremony, they had Kelsey Ballerini up there and Hunter Hayes, and they uh, just did this little ceremony, and they launched in LA, and I was like, well, that was kind of a cool, fun moment, you know, to kind of be a part of there, and so, yeah, I mean, for me, this is a big void for, for me as a listener, and it's a big void for females in country, and I'm concerned. I'm very concerned about that. 
because I really felt like that station did such a great job at pushing these ladies. And I'm very concerned what there is going to be now to get them out there. And I don't know what that is. I probably need to kind of research around and see if there's any alternatives of anything close and I just don't feel like there is. So, yeah. And then I was I was hoping to get a little bit more of a fix, you know, because they said when I read that, they said it was going to be the first quarter of 2021. And so I assumed, well, probably they will maybe wrap up at the end of the year, but they'll keep playing music. And I just logged into my Radio Disney Country app a while ago and... uh the Radio Disney part is there. The Radio Disney Country part is gone. You can't even click that station to even load up anymore. So if you want to check out the regular Radio Disney station, it is there. But the, the on-air talent, from what I've read, is gone. I looked this up a while ago, and they they have ceased you know, producing any kind of new, new programming as far as there. It sounds like all they're doing is just playing playing music on that station now with... Nothing new being uh, put in. So, yeah, for somebody... Because this was a big... Radio Disney Country, again, was a big part of my CMA Fest. And it was a big part of my 2020. Because there's so much of my 2020 music playlist that came from listening to this radio station. So this is going to be a major void is I try to find another place to where I can hear some new new artists, new new songs, you know, from that country pop genre. So, yeah, this is a loss and I'm, you know, I'm assuming from what it sounds like it's pandemic related as I said. So, and then with the focus that they're wanting to focus more on the on the streaming TV side, you know, on the TV side. So, man, yeah, I was bummed. This was this was definitely not a Merry Christmas gift on Christmas Eve when I logged in. I, I believe, like, I shouted "What" through the whole house when I read when I read that that was ending, and then I and I think I just reacted for like the next five minutes of "No, what? No." I think that was pretty much what I did for the next five minutes or the whole rest of the afternoon and evening and still today <laughs> to a point, you know what I mean. But yeah, this is a, this is a bummer. So I don't know if anybody knows of some cool alternatives for Radio Disney Country that plays some really good stuff, you know, on that country pop side that is very similar, especially that pushes those females, you know, definitely let me know because I'm going to be looking for an alternative desperately, you know, to try to try to find how I get my fix, you know, for this uh, country pop side uh, genre here. So, yeah, not not thrilled hearing this news. This this was sad.
reboots, reboots, and more reboots. We finally have a date for the new Punky Brewster reboot. Uh, if you're not familiar, Punky Brewster was a show in the 80s. It was an 80s sitcom that focused on Punky Brewster, who she she was a foster kid, and she was brought in, and this was her new foster family. You know, it kind of focused around her friends, you know, and her new family, and and it was a very popular show in the 80s. It's actually, uh, you can, it inspired like a lot of, there were books, there were books with the show where you could buy buy these books, you know, that were kind of a spinoff of the series and everything. There was a cartoon, there was a cartoon on Saturday mornings that, uh, you know, spun off of that TV series. And so now there's going to be a reboot of it is going to launch on Peacock on February 25th. It is going to drop they're going to drop all 10 episodes on that day. So, very excited to check this out. Um they, they the only thing that they've put out previously was they put out that trailer and then I'm fairly certain they tagged that thing with a date originally. But I don't think the date ever happened because we just kind of kept waiting around. I don't think I'm dreaming this, that they tagged that with a date. But we just kept waiting and waiting for, you know, like, when's this thing going to launch? And it just wasn't happening. And then this just kind of launched out of nowhere this week where they dropped the news on it. And then they actually did put a cast photo out to, to where we can see what the cast looks like. And just very cool. I would see uh, Cherry Johnson you know, she's going to be returning. That's going to be very cool. Freddie Prince Jr. is going to play Punky's ex-husband. Okay, so I need to tell what the story is. Basically, the story is going to like revolve around Punky Brewster's new life of where she's now a single mom of three. But she's also going to run into this other girl named Izzy who's going to be very Punky-like. You know, and she's going to get attached to her. And that's going to bring her into the fold, you know. And so then Freddie Prince Jr. is going to play Punky's ex-husband, Travis. So excited to see Freddie Prince Jr. in this. He's, I enjoy him. I usually enjoy a lot, of, a lot of his projects. So, But if you want to see the original, it is up on Peacock. They've got all the seasons up there if you want to check that out. If you've never seen Punky Brewster, check it out. And, I, you know, for me, myself, I would like to watch it because it's been so long. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I watched that show. It's at least been 20 years. You know, I watched it when it first ran, you know, but when I was a kid. But, you know, I don't, I can't tell you the last time that I've seen it. And it really didn't get picked up a lot in syndication from what I remember. I can't remember seeing it much in syndication Unless it just kind of randomly popped up somewhere. But it wasn't anything consistent. So I actually wouldn't mind going back myself and checking out Peacock and watching a few episodes, you know, to kind of get a feel, you know, of what the show was and kind of get a refresher, you know, because it's just been so long. But I loved it as a kid. I remember that. But yeah, I will definitely check this show out and do some podcast discussion on on it in the future when they launch it. So definitely interested and looking forward to this show launching. The trailer looked fun. The trailer definitely looked fun. So yeah, Punky Brewster, the reboot, February 25th. 
all 10 episodes on the Peacock streaming service. If you're a video game person, you probably want to check out Console Wars, which is on CBS All Access right now, is streaming on there. Especially if you're an old school video game fan like myself that grew up in it, you're really going to enjoy this. Is that really it covers the battles between Nintendo, Sega, and then later on PlayStation and Sony. Uh, it's really cool. I really enjoyed this documentary a lot. There was a lot of stuff in here that I did not know. I mean, it shows, you know, the most of it at the beginning focuses on the Sega part of it, where it's mostly their story and showing how, you know, they had to really overcome a lot of things to try to get themselves out there as competition for Nintendo in the middle of the documentary, they jump backwards and kind of do a time warp back to uh, to show Nintendo's rise. Nintendo's rise is interesting because Nintendo rose up at a time where Atari Atari was really big at the time, but they hit. They hit their plateau, and they had that really bad E.T. game, and they even mention it in the documentary, the famous story of that that E.T. game was so bad that it all the rest of the cartridges were buried in a landfill <laughs> somewhere. I can't even remember where it was now. And I think there was a there's another documentary that was done lately, and I believe it was actually shown to be true. I need to watch that documentary. I have not watched that. But it was actually true that I think they did go to this landfill and they found all these cartridges from the E.T. game. So Atari just pretty well crashed after that. So Nintendo is trying to get rolling and build themselves up in this market to where there's no there's no desire for video games. You know, nobody wants anything to do with it. The industry is just a flop now. So Nintendo is trying to work themselves up, and they fought their way in. And this documentary really does a good job at showing what all they had to do to get the excitement, the promotional machine behind it, the characters, you know, and all that to where Nintendo just became a household name. And, you know, I mean, they show so many, like, kids in this documentary where they're so excited, so pumped to get their Nintendo Entertainment Systems. I was one of those kids. It's like, I remember, I remember going to my friend's house. Um, He had a, he had an NES. I had never played one. He had Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Of course, he had Super Mario and Duck Hunt. Um, I don't remember if he had any other games except for those three. If anything, it might have just been the only ones we played. But I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. And that Christmas, it's like, that's all I wanted. It's like, I just wanted Nintendo and I wanted these games. You know, and that's the way it was for so many people, so many kids all around the country, all around the world. And Nintendo just became just a global phenomenon. So you have that happen and it shows you know, just how dominant Nintendo was. You have Sega that was trying to get rolling too, and they had flopped as well. 
And one thing that was really critical of Sega was that they didn't have kind of an identity. Like, their games just weren't very cool. Like, Nintendo games were so cool. The characters were so cool. Sega just did not have that. So, the story is that uh, Nakayama, who was the CEO of Sega in Japan, um, I want to get this name right. Hold on a second, people. Bear with me. Okay, the story was that um, the executive from Mattel, whose name was Tom Kalinske, he, uh, of course, he was huge with Mattel, like He-Man. You know, all these toys that just became phenomenons in the early 80s. Um, he was on vacation with his family, and, the Se and Nakayama, the Sega CEO, tracked him down on vacation to come up to him and to pitch that he wanted him to lead the U.S. division of Sega be for Sega of America, you know. And so basically, and Kalinsky, you know, talked with his family and everything. And I think, I think I'm remembering this story right from the documentary. My brain's kind of fuzzy for a second. Uh, he immediately flew to, flew to Japan with Nakayama and they worked out a deal and made this thing happen. And one thing that shows with the deal initially is that Kalinsky pretty well wanted control. You know, like, this decision-making goes through me. And what you'll see in this documentary is that that holds true through good, because a lot of his decisions were good, and then the decisions that did not get followed through on were when um, when Nakayama and Sega of Japan went against him. And you'll see that that ended up being a flip-flop of a problem. Later on, it ended up uh, contributing to their demise. So, Kalinsky gets going, and he comes up with an idea, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what to what to use as a marketing tool for Sega, you know, to what was there going to be, what was going to be their Mario that ended up being Sonic the Hedgehog. They went through a lot of different routes trying to figure out how to, what this character was going to be, what their Mario-like character was going to be, and it ended up being Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, Sega, I mean, they talk about just how much trouble they had getting into the market because Nintendo was so dominant and they and a lot of the Sega people are very vocal in this documentary calling them just straight up arrogant you know that because they had such control of the market and they just could do nothing wrong that it almost like they just they did call them arrogant I mean throughout you know, so Sega's trying to figure out a way to punch their way through this and get in. And it's to the point where Sega couldn't even get their stuff in the stores because Nintendo was throwing threats around saying that, you know, there's not going to be any competition to us. You're not going to let competition in the stores. So Sega, you know, they got going with Sonic. They got momentum there. And they went a different route to where... They basically said, you know, we're going to, Nintendo has the kids. We're going to go for a different audience. 
we're going to go for the teenage crowd, the college crowd. We're going to go get that group, you know, because the kids are with Nintendo. We want to make this look really cool for this audience. So they had like the hipper commercials, you know, and the Sega, you know, and all that. They really show that. They really, that made me laugh because I remember those commercials where it was, you know, they had the tagline of Sega. And how that caught on, you know, in the pop culture, uh, pop culture world, you know, that people were quoting the commercial and everything, but they really had to shove their way through to where they finally got attention and they finally got rolling and they really had to find their way to do this. So, of course, Sonic ends up just being a monster hit and they talk about well of course you know super nintendo comes along because sega's pushing hey we're 16 bit we look how look how cool sonic looks look how fast this video game is to where they you know they show like the footage of you know super mario world for super nintendo which they argue it's kind of interesting cuz they argue super nintendo was 16 bit Whereas, like, one of the head guys of Sega was like, that is not 16-bit. You know, he was arguing that it looked more like 12-bit instead of 16 and talked about how slow the game looked to where, you know, you've got, like, Mario jumping around on Yoshi and it looks slower. And then, you know, you put it next to Sonic and Sonic's flying all around the screen and everything. And they talked about how they would go into electronic shows and stuff like that. And they would purposely put Sega machines right next to uh, Nintendo machines to show the difference to where, you know, they could say, look at how different this is. Look how the colors are different on this Sega. Look how fast this game is. Compare it to what you're seeing over here next to it. And so that was really, that was how they had to get their strategy in. And they talked about how they had such trouble getting into the stores and they had to use that deal there to do it. They talked about where Walmart um, would not would not let Sega sell in Walmart. Like they would not give them shelf space, if I remember right. So they so Sega rented out a store um across the street at a mall from the head of Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, they rented out a store in this mall across the street and set it up as a Sega store. And they let kids come in. Well, not kids, anybody. They let anybody come in and they could play games for free to get attention on, on Sega. And so eventually, you know, it, it did get the attention of Walmart and they were like, okay, the head of Walmart was like, okay, I get it. Fine. It's yours. Come on. You will, we've got shelf space for you. So it was really cool. Just how they show that one thing that's really covered. And I remember this at the time was they talk about Mortal Kombat to where Mortal Kombat came out. And it was of course just a monster uh, video game hit. Um, it was available on both consoles. Nintendo 
Of course, it's a very bloody game. Everybody knows Mortal Kombat. If you're any kind of a video gamer, you're going to know this game. Uh, on the Sega version, uh, Mortal Kombat, it was, it was uh, unedited, uncensored. You know, the blood and everything was in there, the brutality. Nintendo had the option of that. They went the opposite direction. They stayed kid-friendly. Uh, instead of blood, it had like green ooze. Like when they would punch, you'd see like green ooze coming out. And they talked about how that was a bad call for Nintendo. Was that that backfired on them. Because uh, Sega ended up with a monster hit out of that. And I remember this at the time. When I was a kid, I remember... If you wanted to if you wanted to play the real version, you got the Sega version. You either rented it or you uh, bought it or whatever. The Nintendo version was seen as like the the edited version, the less than version. And they talked about how that really hurt Nintendo. That was a major bad call on their part to do that. So what ends up happening? You know, Nintendo starts to get maneuvering, you know, where they finally kind of leaned in to where they are like, okay, we've got to, we got to do something. Because they had been playing like Sega off, like not really taking them seriously, uh, kind of brushing them off. And then finally Sega had become such a monster to where Sega had become the cool system and had overtaken Nintendo. So Nintendo was trying to crawl back up you know, and try to do things different. And then they talked about, and like Sega was in the, was in the power seat right here. You know, they were maneuvering along, things were going good. And one thing they talk about a lot is the problems between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And Kalinske had control. Again, he had control of the decision-making there was a lot of things that he pitched, including like what ended up being the Sega Genesis and everything. A lot of the stuff that he pitched to Nakayama in Japan, uh, they tell the story that he was in a board meeting and the first thing when he pitched all what he was going to do with Sega, uh, they all hated it. Uh, Nakayama walked out of the room. Uh, everybody, like they were all, he said they were all whispering in Japanese, and he couldn't understand what they were saying. And finally, somebody he said to somebody, "He's like, what are they saying?" He's like, "Oh, they hate. They they're all talking about how much they hate your ideas." And this was what the ideas that he was pitching was what ended up being successful for Sega. So it really was a clue that Sega of Japan was really flopping on this idea of what they wanted the Sega to be. And when he, when Nakayama walked out of the room, um, Kalinsky was just like, you know, well, what's the deal? What, what do I do? And Nakayama basically told him, yeah, you've got, you can do whatever you want. And the only reason you can is because I told you when you got the job that you could do whatever you wanted and I wasn't going to overrule you. So that's the only reason that this is going to fly. So... That's kind of what, when you see so much of this documentary, you see the battle between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. 
And Kalinsky has all kinds of stories where he would go over to Japan and he and it just seemed like everything he would pitch, they hated. And then he's they really Sega really po- uh, paints a picture of that they really felt like Sega of Japan got jealous of Sega of America with all the success they were having in America because the Sega in Japan was not succeeding. They were like it wasn't a money maker over there like the stuff they were doing in Japan. And Sega of America is what was driving that force for Sega in general, you know. So they ended up having to, you know, kind of maneuver around with that, trying to figure out how to keep and maintain where they were. And everything that was being pitched kind of kept getting shut down in Japan. And it finally got to the point to where Nakayama was shutting stuff down, shutting ideas down. There was a company that was pitching the next uh, technology of like where it was going to go, like the next level of gaming, uh, Silicon. I can't remember the name of the company. It was Silicon something. It was told to uh, Nakayama in Japan about what this was going to be and blah, blah, blah. And this is what it's going to be the next big thing. He shut it completely down and said, nope, not doing it. So uh, they say, well, you know what? There's there's this other company and other video game company in Seattle that, you know, go to them. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. That was Nintendo. That ended up being a lot of the style of like Donkey Kong Country, you know, with what that big hit was because it was very different looking. But that was the concept of the Nintendo 64. So Nakayama, Sega had that. They had that look of the 64. They were discussing it. It was maneuvering ahead of, it was going ahead in pace. And it was shut down, Sega of Japan. So Nintendo got that. Now the next step is that Sony's getting going. And they're developing the PlayStation they needed help with the technology and with a, they needed a partner they were partnering with sega um again they were going to do that they could not i believe it was that sony could not come to an agreement with sega of japan which is nakayama they couldn't come to an agreement on the specifications of the machine and everything so they had a falling out Sony went a different direction. And so this is two major strikes by Sega here. So now you have the Nintendo 64 that's arrived and it's a big hit. You have Sony PlayStation that's right behind it and it's and it's looking like it's going to be a monster and it launches. Now Nakayama is panicking because you know, now we have two 64-bit systems, and he doesn't have one. And, you know, over here in Sega of America, they've been trying to get this to go, and they knew this was a problem. So what ends up happening is uh, they end up rushing the Sega Saturn and trying to get it out because they're so desperate to 
to get out there because they're getting there's two companies that are leaving them behind right now in the dark and like you know they're being left out in the dark here so sega saturn launches um they talked about how it just the software wasn't good they said the hardware wasn't even really good that it just wasn't a good system and the sega saturn flops to where, and I want to get these numbers right. I, I put this in my notes here on uh, the numbers. So Sega Saturn launched with 10 million. Well, I mean, no, I'm not going to say launched. Let me take that back. Sega Saturn sold 10 million consoles, period. So now from what I remember, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure they said the Sega... Genesis sold 12 million, and I don't know if that was in one day or not. I'm going to get that completely wrong, but it was just comparing those numbers were insane. You know, that Saturn, this is all they did was 10 million. The 64 sold 30 million. PlayStation sold over 100 million, becoming the highest selling console of all time. Sega got destroyed in this, and it was like really what Saturn uh a lot of their problem was the Sega of Japan Sega of Japan really sunk them, so that was just crazy with how that all played out and of course, you know how PlayStation ended up turning out PlayStation was a monster. Nintendo, you know, the 64 was very successful. Of course, Nintendo then hit a hit a rut, you know, not long after that. Then kind of bounced back with the Wii, you know, years later. Um, but yeah, it was this is a very interesting documentary. If um if you're an old school video game person like me, you're really going to enjoy this. I think even if you're a new school video game person i think you'll enjoy it looking back on um a lot of this uh and just seeing you know what this industry would become i mean you look back to where they talk about you know what i was saying with you know when atari flopped after the et game and everything and they just sunk and nintendo was trying to get going there were people like calling nintendo a joke like are you kidding me there's this isn't going to be successful and there's no way this works and you know just basically laughing at them and which is so funny now because they said you know nothing will ever be done with video games and now you look at what it is now and twitch is so huge and online gaming that's like i remember growing up and you would always hear parents teachers you know whatever it's like you will never you need to be paying attention to this you need to be studying this because you're never going to make any money in video gaming and let me tell you something there are (laughs) there are people that are that do you know streaming on twitch they make more money in one day than i will ever see in my life you know that's what's so crazy about how at the time, you know, video gaming in the 80s was just seen as, you know, it was a hobby. It was fun, you know, and it was such a monster in the 80s. And now you see people 
that have made a career out of video gaming. Um, they're set for the rest of their life and probably set for generations ahead with how much they've made. I mean, there are some Twitch streamers that just make an insane amount of money. It's incredible what this industry has become. You know, and Nintendo was was the pioneer as far as getting it to the level, you know, that it is now. Um, you know, for me, you know, I was, for me as a kid, I was a Nintendo person. I loved Nintendo. You know, I told the story of my friend, got hooked there, but we'd all sit around, we'd play video games. I have so many great memories of playing video games with my friends and just how much fun that we had. Yeah, I remember, you know, the NES, the Super NES. I remember, oh, what was the thing? What was the, the pad? Power pad? Was it the power pad? I think that's right, where you played track and field. I think that's right, power pad. Um, you had, uh, and then Sega. Sega, for me, and they actually talk about this in a documentary, that one thing Sega did to where they tried to do something different from Nintendo was that Sega went for the TV and movie people to where if there was going to be a game based on a movie or a TV show, Sega would go out there and try to get a license for it to where they would get exclusive games that weren't anywhere else. That's how they pulled me in. I was always a Nintendo kid. Um, for me, the reason I got interested in Sega is like, yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog was really cool. It was an awesome looking game. It was fast. It was different. Sega pulled me because they would get game titles that I couldn't get on Nintendo. So, you know, I remember I was into, they had uh, they had an NBA game, uh, NBA Bulls versus Lakers. That was only available on the Sega. It was only available on Sega Genesis. Now the next one, Bulls versus Blazers was available on both consoles, Sega and Super Nintendo. But Sega would have a lot of exclusive titles that pulled me in. So pretty much the way I went with my gaming as a kid, I went Nintendo, Game Boy, um... Messed around with the Sega some, you know, but then Super Nintendo came out and I really went hardcore Super Nintendo. Um, still played the Sega. You know, I had a Sega. It was cool. Enjoyed it. Um, I got the Sega CD from there. Um, Sega CD was really cool technology, and they, they showed it in the documentary a little bit. They just kind of uh, went over it very quickly, and they didn't really even acknowledge it with wording. They just mostly showed, like, the commercials. Sega CD was very cool for its time. I remember it launched. I can't remember what the name of the game was that it launched with. Um, that came with it. Was it like sewer sewer shark? Am I am I thinking it right? Sewer shark? I don't know if that's right or not. The game that got me 
was Jurassic Park. Um, because you would see like real, like moving images. Like it looked as close to movie like that we had seen on a system, you know, to where, and of course, it was on a CD. It was the first time we've ever had a game on a disc, you know, that was very cool. The only thing with the Sega CD is that it was super slow loading. It was so slow. I do remember that. I had NBA Jam on the Sega CD, and every quarter it would have to load after every quarter, and it was super slow. Um, I bet you would sit there, man, I don't know. 15 or 20 seconds in between quarters waiting for the next quarter to load up. So that was one big criticism of Sega CD was that it was slow. The technology was very cool because we had never seen it before. And like I said, I remember that Jurassic Park game. I'm like, this is really amazing how you could walk around and how real, and I say real loosely. I mean, it's not like now. At the time... That was the closest we'd seen to real, <laughs> to where it looked movie-ish and TV-ish. And uh, after that, it was the Sega 32X. They did show that a little bit. I think it was 32X. Um, I never played the 32X, I don't believe. I don't think I ever played it. Never really had any interest in it. Nintendo 64 came out. My experience with the 64 was just... Whenever somebody else had the system, Walmart had it set up to where you could play it in there. Like you could play Mario 64 and stuff like that in there. That was fun. Um, it just, 64 just never really hooked me though, for whatever reason. Um, I remember playing it in there and my friends, a few of my friends had 64s. And I'd maybe occasionally play there. Um, but for me, at that time, I had jumped to PlayStation. Um, I saw Sony PlayStation, and I was like, this is really cool. And it had a lot of the games that I liked. Like, you know, I talked about NBA Jam. It was available on PlayStation 1, and it looked amazing on PlayStation 1. It had a lot of cool games, and again, it was on a disc. It was on a CD. It was technology that we hadn't seen besides the Sega CD. It, was, it wasn't a cartridge. The loading times were fast. It looked good. It sounded good. I'd become a PlayStation person. Um, and then from there, I pretty much stayed PlayStation, right? I don't think... I mean, I jumped over way later down the line. I jumped over to 360. I mean, I got the NBA 2K games. I was wanting something to play it on, and I went with... Xbox 360. You know, it's a little trend here with NBA games. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I pretty much stayed PlayStation from there. And even now I've got the PlayStation 4. So um, but I would like, I mean, I've always liked Nintendo though. And the only reason I just, the only reason I hadn't gotten some of the other Nintendo systems is just because of money wise. I always wanted a Nintendo Wii. I just never got one. 
Um, I'd like to get a switch now. I will eventually probably get me a switch here soon is what I'm expecting to do. So that's kind of where I've jumped around over my video gaming life, you know. But as a kid, I started with Nintendo. And like they said in the documentary, they jumped to that teen and college audience with the Sega games. And I remember when they first launched, I was like, I'm just not really crazy about a lot of these games. I didn't like how they looked. Well, I mean, no, I'm going to take that back. They looked amazing. They just weren't games that hooked me because I was still a kid. I liked the Nintendo stuff. I liked Mario and Zelda, you know, and all these games that were there. I guess I saw Sega games as just nothing that interested me, you know, because it was geared toward an older audience. And I was still a kid. <laughs> I was a little kid over here enjoying my Nintendo it runs about just under an hour and a half long. It really captures the the dynamic of that time period of the battle between all these video game systems and just the boom of video games in the 80s and then how it evolved from there and into the 90s and then, of course, up to now. So, yeah, CBS All Access console wars look it up check it out i think you'll enjoy it it's uh, it's really well done it brings back a lot of memories uh there was a lot of stuff in there i had forgotten a lot of the commercials and just a lot of the details of it there's uh like they show with the playstation at the end they show the crash bandicoot uh commercial where he's out there with the megaphone <laughs> outside nintendo headquarters forgot all about that i remember i remember those ads now but i'd completely forgotten about them until i saw them in this so it's going to bring back a lot of memories for you it's going to give you a lot of information that you didn't know about so yeah check it out cbs all access console wars get your classic video gaming on and enjoy that show I have finished all 10 episodes of the new Saved by the Bell reboot. I'm going to talk spoilers here, and I'm going to talk spoilers in depth on how this season plays out. So if you do not want to know what happens on this first season, hopefully first season, of more of the new Saved by the Bell, you need to tune out right now. Right now. Yep. Still waiting. Okay, we're talking spoilers. So... For me, I enjoyed the new Say by the Bell. I don't know if it's something that I was... I, it wasn't something I was just jumping up and down about. Like, oh, this is so awesome, you know. I enjoyed it myself. Of course, I grew up with the original. And like the pilot, I thought I liked how they set it all up. You know, I talked about how they really laid the groundwork of, you know, the new kids, you know, with Douglas kids and the Bayside kids, and then also reintroducing, you know, the characters that we grew up with, with what they're doing, and, you know, how they tie into the new series, and I, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it, um, so let's talk about kind of where we were, you know, I talked about the Daisy character, who is basically the new Zack, to where she is the one that gets the role of, 
being able to talk to the camera, you know, and freeze time and that, you know, we see, we see the story through her eyes and through her voice. And Daisy was the one at, you know, the other school to where she was going to be class president over there. And she was just the one that was always leading for change, you know, over there. So now her world gets rocked and, you know, and Aisha, Devante, you know, to where they all get shipped over to Bayside after Governor Zach Morris makes a decision on education to where he shuts down all the lower income schools and forces basically a lot of combining of schools. So Douglas gets combined over to Bayside. And then, of course, we get, you know, the stories of, you know, them trying to mix in, you know, with the Bayside group to where we have Jamie, who is Jesse Spano's son. And then we get Lexi. We get Mac, who is Zach's son, Zach and Kelly's son. And there was a lot of good stuff. You know, I like the I like the pilot a lot. I thought I thought kind of the episodes from there, of course it was just a lot of introducing. I didn't really feel like the show really kind of hit stride as far as like, okay, can't wait to watch the next episode to see what happens. Until about episode seven. You know, I thought episode seven was kind of where things really picked up to where you saw a build. You know, it felt like everything to that point was laying the groundwork, introducing these characters, letting them kind of interact with one another, you know, and kind of build that. But episode seven, that's kind of where, you know, we had the funny stuff with Slater, where there was a lot of, you know, where he, where he was at the party, having the party with students and everything. And uh, and there was a lot of references to the original, including the dance thing. That was pretty funny. But that episode also gave us like the first real tease of where you think you're going to get Slater and Jesse back together. But then here comes the husband sliding back in, you know, of Jesse's husband. But you can tell that there's that relationship is not working with Jesse and her husband, you know, it's, it's very rocky. He just kind of seems like he's off doing his own thing. He's doing like a lot of retreats and stuff like that, like self-improvement retreats and those kind of things. So with episode seven, you know, that's, like I said, that's where it got rolling. That's also to where we kind of learn that Lexi has a thing for, for Jamie but Jamie has paired up with Aisha, and Aisha has really transitioned over into Bayside very well to where she's made the football team, she's the star player on it, and things are just going very well for her to where like her best friend Daisy is not having that. She's really having to fight to kind of kind of try to get her footing in this place, you know? So with this, we you know we get the Aisha Jamie uh, relationship. In this episode, we I don't know if they introduced it before this or not, but we learned that Lexi has a thing for Jamie, and in this episode, Lexi Lexi and Mac they're trying to work up a scheme to break up Aisha and Jamie at Jamie's birthday party 
so Lexi can then have him. But then the thing, this is kind of where we first see like the evolution of Lexi because Lexi and Mac at the beginning of the series are, you know, like kind of, the, she's kind of the mean girl a little bit, you know, and Mac's always up to his schemes where it benefits him. A lot of what Zach Morris used to do, you know, it, he always had schemes and Mac is the same way. He's always figuring out ways to do schemes and things that would help him and benefit him. You know, and Lexi's kind of really kind of the same way, just on the female side. And they work together a lot, you know, in the beginning. And this episode here was kind of really where we first saw Lexi changing to where she had this big scheme of we're going to break them up and then I'm going to get him. And then she starts to feel remorse on it. And she doesn't want to go through with it, puts a stop to it and basically gets them back together after doing the conflict. So this is the first like really big evolution of Lexi kind of going from the mean girl to the nicer girl, you know? So when we get to episode eight, this is the homecoming weekend episode. This is Zach and Kelly's return to Bayside and they dig up a time capsule you know, that they had left. And this is something that's, it's kind of bizarre. It was bizarre, but it was also kind of funny. Principal Toddman, he's very Belding-like, and he's a very likable character. You know, he's just, he's very Belding-like with just the hijinks and stuff and, you know, the way he interacts with the kids and everything. And But there's an episode, this episode here, they they do a thing to where they basically rewrite history of Say by the Bell and Todman's like, you know, he's talking to Zach and Kelly and them and he's talking, you know, like he was one of them. And they're all looking at each other like, Did he do we know him? Did we know him in high school? Like who is this guy? Like like I don't and all of them like Zach and Kelly, Slater and Jesse, they're all just completely baffled. And he's telling stories of like, yeah, I remember when we did this and we did that together and all these things. And they're all just awkwardly not saying it out loud, but saying, we do not remember you at all. So we get a Lisa cameo here to where they call Lisa and they're saying, do you remember Todman? And she's like, yeah, of course I remember Toddman, you know, and she's telling him and they're like, we do not remember this guy at all. And they're even like mixing in uh, moments, you know, from the past, like pictures and stuff. And they've they've put Toddman in the pictures to add him in. And it's kind of funny. It's very bizarre, but it's also kind of funny, too. But also with Lisa, we also learned that she is a famous fashion designer in Paris now. So if you want to know what happened to Lisa Turtle, that is what she is currently doing on the new Say by the Bell. So this was the only cameo that we got from Lisa in the series, but it was really fun. I really enjoyed this cameo. It was awesome to see her back on the show. So that was very cool. Um, They even... So they basically... Todman finally figures out that they have no clue who he is, that they don't even remember him. And of course it hurts his feelings, you know. So Zach comes up with a plan that they're going to bring back the Zach Attack band. 
and they're going to include Todman for like as a way to make good with him and to kind of apologize and give him some kind of fun like hey look you're bonding with us moment and then Zach finally remembers that Zach attack was only famous in a dream of his and it so this makes zero sense to <laughs> to do but it ends up there's this big uh, Max trying to come up with a prank, you know, to come up to do some kind of epic prank to be remembered. And it ends up happening to Todman. And there's this big moment to where they, you know, Todman has this happen. And he's like, you did this for me. You were doing this to try to include me. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. Exactly. So... I don't know, it was, it was a silly kind of storyline, but it was also kind of funny, so, and so it was, and it was also cool, you know, to get the reunion of Zach Kelly, Slater, and uh, Jesse all in here talking, and, and there's, there's, there's tension, you know, there's tension between the group, you know, to where there's, they have differences, of course, with, uh, you know, a lot of Zach's decision making as, as uh, governor of California, so, the big storyline arc of the final part of the season where we get like what the big overall story arc is going to be that gets us to the end of the season is that they were having trouble raising money for this dance and Daisy and Lexi and they team up to get this done. Daisy's pushing like on how can we get this done and make this happen and raise this money. So what happens is at the end of this episode, we learn that Jade, who is one of the moms or one of the students there, she has used the homecoming money to fix up the Douglas High School, which is going to mean that all the Douglas kids are going to go back to Douglas High School, and which leaves just everybody in shock. The story of Jade to this point was that she had tried to get Devontae suspended over her son falsely blaming Devante for physical abuse over a theater review involving him. And what ends up happening is that Daisy, Lexi, and Mac shut that whole thing down because Mac hears Tanner say that he wasn't even at the performance. So Jade is like kind of your typical like mean mom. <laughs> There's a lot of mean girls and mean moms and stuff going on here. She's kind of like that mean mom, you know, that was going on there. So she has now just kind of went rogue, you know, and she's used this money to where she's fixed up the Douglas High School uh, building to where they're going to be able to go back. So in the next episode, we see Todman and Devante where they go take a visit to the newly renovated Douglas High to where they want to make sure this is going to be on up and up and everything. And they're really impressed with what they see, but Todman runs into the principal there, and they're old friends. And the principal basically clues it in of, like, yeah, she's just, yeah, it looks great. Look, everything looks great, but she's just the latest person that's going to show up, drop a bunch of money on stuff, say, look at me, and then we never see her again, and the kids never see her again, and she has nothing to do with this school ever again. She's just drop. She's just the latest to drop money. Look at me. Look at how awesome I am. Look what I did, and then bails out. You know, and that's kind of what he ends up seeing, saying. And so Todman is now seeing through her as well. So 
another story that plays onto this is Jamie and Aisha with their relationship. You know, now they see they're going to be separated because Aisha is going to go back to go back to Douglas. So Jamie comes up with the idea that he's going to propose to her. So she'll have his name, which would allow her to stay, which is obviously a really crazy and insane idea considering you've been dating this girl for like a month and a half in high school, (laughs) you know? So, but yeah, you know, after a month and a half of dating in high school, marriage proposal seems perfectly normal for something to do. So, but of course that ends up leading to tension and then he's, he sees at this point that she's just not as into him as he is into her and that leads to the breakup, which leads us to the finale. So, in a previous episode, Daisy, she's trying to get things going. She's trying to, she even goes to City Hall. She's got plans, trying to do whatever she can to save this from happening to where they can stay at Bayside. Uh, the group, you know, all of them come together and they decide they're going to organize a school-wide walkout. But they have trouble getting all the clicks in the school to participate because they're trying to figure out how do we get them all to come together on this one agenda instead of them all being kind of on their own. And that ends up being a problem. So they end up arguing amongst themselves and actually the group themselves end up arguing, you know, over this to where even Daisy and Aisha are arguing back and forth on things on how to go about this. So they try to figure out, they figure out that the best way to do this is to, because Daisy and uh, Aisha end up arguing with one another and then Devante says something that just completely offends them and they turn on him and then they stick up for one another against him and then they go, oh, that's how we do it. We need to have some kind of a common villain or something to where we can get all these cliques and everybody to form together and they go against the common common villain and Lexi says I'll do it I'll be the villain and I'll just you know she's basically like hey I'll just go back to my roots here and I'll just it's like I'll take the heat I don't care if everybody hates me or not it's like I'll just go up there and rip on all of them and then and then get them motivated you know and then right before this we get the speech you know where of course I talked about Lexi uh, liking Jamie and Jamie's talking about, you know, one thing in this episode is that all the kids are talking about how like Max talking about how he's changed and Lexi's talking about how she's changed and Jamie and how these Douglas kids that have come into the school and into their group have had such a positive influence on them and really changed them for the better. And Jamie was talking about that to Lexi about he's saying, you're just, you've just changed so much for the positive. You're just not at all like you used to be. So, you know, now Lexi is having trouble to where she's just like, great, you know, this is just what I got a few minutes ago, and now I'm going to just dismantle it, you know, and go out there and just turn everybody against me. So that's what ends up happening. She goes out there and does that, and everybody, of course, turns on her, she gets full heat, but then they all bond together. We're like, we can do this. Watch us work together. And this is what we're going to do. So Mac talks about how he wants to get his dad there to where he's like, what if I could get the governor here? And he helps us out. He's like, I think I can get my dad here. 
So when he goes to talk, because they show him, you know, at dinner with Zach and Kelly and he's talking about it and they just, he keeps giving that like that nonchalant thing of like, yeah, I'll I'll see what I can do, you know, and Kelly's kind of given the same thing. And when Matt goes back and reports this back, you know, to the, to the group and he's like, this is what we're going to do. He's going to be here. He's like, well, what did he say? And then they say what he had said, you know, like, well, I'll see what I can do. And then they tell, tell him, yeah, that's adult speak for no. <laughs> that's what that means. That's adult speak for no. And parents speak for no. So the walkout ends up happening. They Everybody walks out. It's a good thing. Zach shows up. And uh, so, of course, they, uh, they get the media there because, you know, again, Mac is, you know, he said that the governor was going to be there. So the media is all there. All kinds of attention. They're all hoping that Zach's going to do something good. Then he unveils a mural, and that's it. He just unveils a mural, gets his photo op, and he's leaving. And so, of course, Daisy's like, you got to do something. You got to do something here. So Mac runs after his dad and, you know, just pleads on him of, you know, you've got to do something. You need to do something here. And Zach doesn't want to do anything because he's up for re-election, and he talks about how education is not something you want, really want to bring up for a fight in a re-election and that he's putting re-election as his priority and Max really pushing him on you know doing the right thing here so before the media all pulls away Zach announces that he is going to order a three-year freeze on all openings and closings of schools which would keep the Douglas kids there and he says He's like, yeah, this isn't going to be probably very popular, and I'm probably going to get some heat over this. And then it's like, bing, 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 and he looks at his phone, and his phone's just lighting up with notifications. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm being sued. Oh, I'm I, I'm being sued by a second person. Oh, okay, that's not good. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of like that kind of thing overall, you know, to where Zach's getting the immediate feedback of what he said it was going to be a problem of. So the Douglas kids end up staying, which is very cool. We also, we get the moment of the Jesse storyline here with her and her husband to where, you know, we've been seeing that that is, they are clearly very different people and that this relationship and marriage is not working at all. And of course her husband's there and she finally just kind of has it and kind of stands up and says, you're never here for me or our son, and I want a divorce. So, you know, and one thing in this episode that happened earlier on was, you know, when the movement was trying to get going, you know, not just among the kids, but also Jesse was pushing this hard, too, to try to keep the Douglas kids there, that she is wanting to to keep them and try to get going, get things going, you know, on what to do. And Slater at one point says, kind of picks at her, like, you always did this kind of stuff, you know, and there was always some kind of thing or some kind of movement you were into or whatever. And he realizes that, oh, you know, Jesse was always really trying to do good things and we really just picked on her for it. And that really wasn't very good of us to do. And he later apologizes and says, 
you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, we really weren't the best to you when you were fighting for these things that were really positive things. So that with that and then, you know, with the husband, with the divorce looming here, this really feels like they're setting up to where if we get a season two, I feel like we're going to maybe get a Jesse Slater kind of relationship or union here. It sure seems like that's where they've been building all season. So we will see how that goes. So the end of the episode has, you know, all the group of new group of kids, you know, they're all in the max together and, and like you see where they've all bonded and everything. And then the, the big moment at the end of the episode is Max phone going off with a notification and He's just like, man, they're all like, man, I'm really glad we're finally going to have a carefree year. This is going to be great. Everything's like chilled out. And then Matt gets a notification on his phone. He looks and he goes, huh, what's coronavirus? And then that's basically how the, basically how it ends is, uh, is that. So it was kind of like a nod, you know, to, uh, to the bad that was coming, you know, so, yeah, that's how the season ended with Saved by the Bell. There's no word on season two. Uh, I don't know how it's performing. I know they promote it heavily. Uh, I watch other things on Peacock, you know, a lot of like the live streaming channels, and they're constantly pushing Saved by the Bell. And then there's other things where I see Saved by the Bell promoted. So, including them reading you know, the promotion on some of these other live shows, some of these live sports shows that I watch, they actually do read, read promos, you know, of Saved by the Bell. So I assume we get a season two. Um, Like I said, I enjoyed it. It wasn't anything that I was just really jumping up and down crazy about, but I really felt like when we got to episode seven, it was just like, okay, now I want to, I really want to see how this plays out. Cause now we, it seemed like we had, kind of introduced everybody and it was just like now we're going to push the story and this is how we're going to go so yeah yeah i enjoyed it so definitely check it out it's up on peacock streaming service the new stay by the bell along with the old stay by the bells you want to go back and watch those they are there i've talked about the podcast that mark paul gossler and dashiell driscoll does uh, where they look back on the old episodes. They're doing a rewatch of those and talking about it to where Mark Paul Gossler hasn't seen any of these episodes in like, you know, 25 years or something. So he's going back and watching it and they're talking about it and they bring on guests. That's called Zach to the Future. If you want to check that podcast out, it's really good. It's really fun. So there's a lot of Say by the Bell content out there on Peacock and out there on your podcast if you want to check it out. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Take care, God bless, and thank you so much for listening.